This is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Hilary Angelo, an assistant professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Hillary is an historical sociologist who focuses on the relationships between the environment and large-scale transformations in urban contexts. We spent most of our conversation discussing a book that Hillary recently authored entitled How Green Became Good, Urbanized Nature and the Making of Cities and Citizens. In this book, Hillary analyzed a social imaginary that she calls urbanized nature, or a way of idealizing the role that greening projects can play, which motivates a set of practices of urban greening in Germany's rural valley. An important conclusion that Hillary comes to is that we need to green better and green less, or not assume that we should always introduce new green infrastructure, and when we do, that we should better consider the political and social implications of new projects to avoid processes such as green gentrification. We concluded by talking about how each of us sees the challenge of engaging with extra academic actors and doing work that is both policy relevant and intellectually engaging. Well, so the first question that I do have for you is about, I mean, so the, this book that you just wrote, um, How Green How Green Became Good, which it came out with University of Chicago Press, was it last year, 2020? Uh, this year, just a couple months ago. This year, just a couple months ago. So um, I was just mentioning to you in our discussion uh, before I hit the record button that towards the end of that book, you mentioned... Uh, kind of how this started for you. And I like to start most of these interviews with some kind of question about the guest's origin story. It's kind of what I call it. So the way superheroes have origin stories. So, um, you know, whether you got bit by a spider, what have you. And so in that part of the book, you mentioned that you used to work, I think it was in New York for the public sector. Was it, the, it was the park service? Uh, yeah, it was the parks department. Mm -hmm. Parks department. And there was there was a section in there that you you wrote you wrote about like how you you saw your colleagues being afflicted, and I really I was a, like the, the afflicted word really was like uh, powerful to me with this kind of relationship they had with the green spaces that they were that they cared about that they were um, trying to help maintain, and it seemed like during that previous position you had several aha moments. And now I don't want to start projecting too much, but it seemed like that led to your movement into academia. So I would love to hear, to start things off, how that process went for you, how you understood your move to academia based on this previous experience. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a good question and, a, and a, good, a good guess about what the move consisted of. So I, yeah, I worked for the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation for about five years before I got my PhD uh, for a program actually called Partnerships for Parks, which... Uh, existed to sort of get volunteers engaged in city parks and to also help the agency work better with the public. And um, I worked on a lot of interesting projects there. I worked on developing a participatory design process for city parks. I worked on um, what was called a language access initiative. Uh, so this was a mayoral initiative focused on improving access to city services for new immigrants. And so in the context of parks that in included things like translating signs into other languages and making um, 
permitting processes more accessible and that kind of thing. Just kind of dealing with the variety of people who use those public spaces. And uh, we worked in parks all over the city and especially in what they called historically underserved neighborhoods or so, you know, sort of not large Manhattan parks, but smaller neighborhood parks in the outer boroughs. And I did have a few aha moments. One of them was just a kind of, I, I mean, I think amazement at how much people loved them. So both parks and things like street trees. Um, so these sorts of green symbols in city neighborhoods were the focus of people's adoration, labor, um, love, you know, commitment in all kinds of ways. And that was true, even in these neighborhoods that had all kinds of other pressing problems, right, where people could easily be spending volunteer hours or advocating um, for better city services in the realms of you know, childcare or housing or work. Um, and so, so that was one thing that really struck me. And as a result of that, or sort of tied up with that, I was also really interested in the kind of political power that this that these green spaces had. So for example, we would often advise community groups that they could sort of like get in good with their city council person by doing some park volunteer days and inviting them, the city council person to a ribbon cutting, which would make that elected official look really good and would sort of create an opening for these community groups to make more contentious or difficult, you know, sort of politically difficult asks. Um, so yeah, all these questions about their power and, um, uh, I guess just awareness that that the, they seem to be the solution to all kinds of social problems. And I should say that this was also in the early 2000s. It was kind of around the time that questions about green gentrification, I think, were really coming to the fore. So there was also an awareness on the part of my, my coworkers and myself that we, we, we were trying to do this kind of good work in parks, but um, but often there were concerns about those investments in green spaces leading to increases in property values and potentially displacing the community groups that had you know, advocated for park improvements in the first place. So whole nexus of interesting issues. And I felt um, as many people do, I think who work in city government that I was, I was doing a lot of thinking on my feet and didn't, um, was trying to develop solutions to problems that I didn't understand as well as I wanted to. So I think it was those that, that really was what drove me to graduate school. Um, so I, I went back to, to NYU and got my PhD in sociology after, after that. And then I started working on this book. So you stayed in, and so you were working with the, some of the same parks that you had been studying, like how much, how much continuity was there from your earlier position and your position as a PhD student? You, were you engaging with some of the same folks during like your Not PhD work? Yeah, not not much. I um okay. much to my surprise. So I went to graduate school kind of interested in environment, you know, kind of urban environmental issues and at the time actually really um kind of social conflicts that came up around those spaces. So one of the things and I talk about it in the book in a really different context, but one of the things that I also thought was interesting about parks is that we kind of act like nature is kind of universally accessible, right? So mm -hmm. that when we when we talk about access, it's basically like, you know, this neighborhood lacks a park, so we should put one in and not so much um, about these kind of questions about sort of cultural access or, you know, what does it mean to have spaces that are open to all kinds of different uses or how do we reproduce our own kind of conventions for what public space or what green space looks like when designing them. 
Um, so I actually went to grad school interested in some of those conflicts that came up around uh, nature. And um, in the park, when I was at parks, the other thing I was really interested in was there was an effort to legalize chicken keeping in New York City at the time. So I was part of what was called a chicken working group and um, that was dealing with some of these logistical issues. And so, so I went to grad school thinking about those things. It was sort of by accident or as a result of a, a kind of different set of more theoretical, like intellectual questions that led me to formulate the dissertation project that turned into this book, which is actually a historical study of an industrial region in Germany. So, so there was no direct connection, but, um, but those parks days absolutely informed, you know, sort of the questions that I was asking. Right. And the area in Germany, I'm probably not going to pronounce it right. Is it Ruhr? Ruhr? It is. Yeah, it's the Ruhr. I, I, uh, any Germans listening to this or any of my German friends know that it's German R's are hard for Americans, <laughs> especially mm -hmm. for me, but so it's, it's the Ruhr Valley of Germany, mm -hmm. which is um, a sort of historically industrial region on the Western side of the country. Okay. And so I mentioned to you that I was watching this uh, YouTube video of you talking to some other folks that clearly like knew a lot about um, the literature you were drawing on, the, the relevant theories. So I have to say, I'm not, I'm not in that group. So when I was, you know, reading the book and I was uh, listening to this, uh, and, and, and I'm saying this in part because the audience for this podcast um, is also not tend to be people that like know a lot of like sociological, social theory, et cetera. So I think it'd be helpful both for me and for listeners to ask you what for you are probably some pretty rudimentary questions to kind of get us on board with this. So, you know, this idea of one of the terms I saw doing a lot of work throughout this content, throughout your analysis is this idea of an imaginary, mm -hmm. which, you know, I'm used, as, I'm used to it as like an adjective, not as a noun. And mm -hmm. then we add, an, we add an adjective to it, social imaginary. And, you know, as a good academic, I say that tongue in cheek, I went to Wikipedia to look up, okay, what's social imaginary? And so it talks about values and institutions. I feel like there's this idea of assumptions. You talked about it in your discussion uh, on the video as being similar to, but also importantly different from this idea of ideology. And so I, I ended up, it, it, in my current state of mind, it's, it feels like it's kind of everything. <laughs> it's everything that has to do with how we perceive things in our, like how we, and how we kind of project those perceptions onto this other thing called reality. But I don't know if we're like also kind of not comfortable with a lot of this seems to also be about like not accepting dichotomies. So like how comfortable <laughs> are we with like, is part of this so that we don't even like the idea that there's perception versus reality. And then I'm like, okay, have I just gone off the deep end? And now I'm back as like an undergraduate philosophy major, which is what I was. Uh, yeah. So can you help me in the audience? you know, because this is also a term that I think a lot of us, we don't engage with it ourselves, but we hear. And so how do you use it? And then for people who haven't used it in our own work, like how would, how could we make it work for us and have it be less kind of uh, abstract and scary? Yeah. So the term, so yeah, I use the term social imaginary in this book. And what I'm looking at is sort of a particular, like a particular set of ideas about nature. And so the idea, the term is meant to refer to not 
totally everything about the way people think about the world, but a, share, a set of sort of socially shared understandings about a particular thing that then um, make particular kinds of actions possible or account for the reproduction of particular sorts of actions. So the probably the most famous example of the use of this term and one that I do talk about in the book is a book called Imagined Communities by Benedict Anderson. Um, and he is writing about nationalism. So he's talking, and he's talking specifically about the idea of a nation, right? So as I'll appeal to your undergraduate philosophy brain, right? So it's sort of like, it is somewhat of a historical accident that we live in a world of nations. And what was sort of interesting to Benedict Anderson is how did people come to affiliate with the nation, right? To sort of see this as a powerful social and geographic container, right? To sort of identify with other people within this set of borders to to find the border itself meaningful and to like engage in all kinds of efforts to exclude other people to build walls um those kinds of things and how did those ideas how did those ideas get reproduced within one nation and how did they travel to other parts of the world so like he talks about things like um all the things we do we'll just speak as, as Americans for a minute, right? All the things we do to, to reproduce the idea of nation here are ways that it gets taught, right? Like in school, you say the Pledge of Allegiance and um, you see flags everywhere and that, that kind of stuff. Um, he also looks at how this idea sort of traveled to other parts of the world. And so other, other places with very different histories and cultural and political contexts might kind of take up the mantle of, of nation and fly flags and go to war and do things. Um, within that framework. So, so I use the idea of social imaginary to try to kind of, to try to help us imagine or to kind of like see intellectually that there is a shared set of ideas about nature that are, that are shaping, that are motivating sets of activities that are responsible for the way we treat these, these green things in urban environments. Um, so, so basically, my argument is that there is there is a specific way that nature is understood, and that that understanding we can kind of see it. We can name it a social imaginary. We can study its history. We can look at its travel, and we can try to sort of describe it. Like, what are, what does it consist of? Um, and I can talk about that more concretely. But that's that's sort of why I think the term is useful. That helps a lot. I mean, I, I didn't know the origin of the idea of imagined, com imagined communities, but it, it, it seems actually quite powerful in trying to understand, yeah, the, the, the I don't want to say arbitrariness of statehood and like how we've gotten to this particular way of like large scale social organization. It seems like if you, it'd be hard to explain that or engage with it without some term that's in that direction. Because it feels like yeah. that's, yeah. And I don't know, I mean, there are alternatives to, I mentioned the idea of ideology in this, this recording that you watched, and I think also in the book, I mean, that is another, right, that ideology is another kind of academic term or sort of social scientific term for thinking about a shared understanding, but that's one that has a really specific, you know, there's a sort of politics baked into the, this is the idea of ideology, right? There's a sense mm -hmm. that ideologies are distorted views of reality, and they're, they're products of certain uh, social and material relationships, and there's something we want to like get out of, right? We want to sort of correct okay. the vision. Um, the thing that I think is interesting about these ideas about nature, and one of the things that I was trying to make room for in selecting the term social imaginary is that they're used by all kinds of people with all kinds of relationships to power. 
So I'm not saying that that or the greening or that the ideas about nature are only kind of you know top down um, market oriented responses to things, but we see like grassroots social movements using these ideas. We see, um, yeah, you know, city <laughs> city parks departments mobilizing these ideas. Uh, we see okay. them traveling all over the world. Yeah. And so it seems like, and, and the idea of traveling seems important because it magnifies the impact that this this can have. Um, yes. Okay. And and I'll just say one thing. Yeah. So you you asked me before, does the book, the research for the book, like touch on the sort of parks I was working on in New York? Mm -hmm. And the answer is no. But but part of the reason for why I picked this historical project in this site in Germany is because one of the questions that really preoccupied me as a scholar was how is it that these ideas have traveled so far? So when we think about urban sustainability today or urban greening today, right? It's sort of ubiquitous all over the world, like Ethiopia is planting a billion trees and um, smart cities in the Middle East all, you know, are also <laughs> have like vines on the outside of their buildings. And so I wanted to try to design a project that would allow me to think about how this aesthetic and moral repertoire, like how the sets of ideas and behaviors are traveling all these different places. Okay. Um, yeah. This is great. So I, I mean, to test kind of my understanding that it sounds like you're taking this, the framing of the social imaginary, the way it was described when it was talking about kind of patriotism, uh, imagined communities, it's seen as like a macro cause of like these like micro behaviors that we're seeing on the ground. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Okay. And the mm -hmm. word social is there because it's emphasizing the idea that this is a shared understanding among a group of people. Correct. So, so, okay. Um, I mean, something else I feel like I'm hearing, and this is going to tap into some language that the listeners of, of this podcast hear a lot about. So within the commons community, which is one of the communities that we engage with, we talk about shared resources, we think about like local level governance and management and how it scales or not. We think a lot about uh, panaceas. And it sounds, you know, I, I wrote in my notes, like parks is panaceas, question mark, because when you talk about this traveling, that's what we worry about when we think about kind of policy panaceas, it actually fits fairly well, at least in my mind. And again, I'm always aware of like my tendency to anyone's tendency to like project um, it sounds at least parallel to some of the stuff you're talking about. This is a set of assumptions about how we should and can engage with nature, what nature is, and what are the, and a part of this also is like, what are the material consequences? What are the behavioral consequences of these understandings? And mm -hmm. I would assume that's what motivates looking at a lot of this is because this actually impacts what happens on the ground for better or worse. Absolutely, yeah. So, and I mean, I guess I should have said, so I'm a historical, or I became a historical sociologist once I went to graduate school. And so fantasy is a good word. I, I, so I went there interested in like how parks offer themselves as a solution to all kinds of urban problems for all kinds of people. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so, you know, what I ended up studying is where does this set of ideas come from and what are their effects, right? How do they affect the way people make decisions about um, the built environment? Okay. Yeah. And so I saw slash read these several components of this. You, you were looking at a particular social imaginary mm -hmm. and it was with respect to this process of greening and green spaces and urban environments. And I highlighted like these several key words 
that seem to describe this particular social imaginary. And in the video, I also know that you talk about these a little bit, like the fact that nature is presumed to be indirect, aspirational, and universal. Mm -hmm. So could you talk about um, what work those words do in characterizing the kind of the social imaginary of greening as you found it in Germany? Yeah, yeah. So I am, a, so I argue in the book that there is a social imaginary. I mean, I sort of said, you know, this is the thing that I decided having done this research, that there is a social imaginary. I call it urbanized nature. So part of a argument is that it's an outcome of urban life broadly understood in ways that we can talk about, but that there's this thing that we can trace its emergence, that we can understand its logics. And so I describe it as indirect, aspirational, and universal in contrast to other possible ideas of nature. So by indirect, I mean that um, nature's goods are seen to be sort of moral and affective. So, I, so like that it's nature in these kind of symbolic forms, not nature as a subsistence good. Um, mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that community gardens aren't seen as good, but that the part of the reason they're seen as good is not just because they're producing food, but also because they're seen as wonderful community spaces. They, you know, bring us together. We feel good when we get our hands dirty. They contribute to the like livability of a neighborhood, all those kinds of things. Um, that, uh, that it's universal because as I kind of mentioned before, we tend to act like connecting to nature is this kind of basic human capacity, right? So as long as you have, as long as people can physically get themselves to a park or a garden, um, we will all then benefit from it in the same way, just by virtue of its physical presence, um, rather than sort of thinking about the kind of differences and how uh, people might relate to these spaces. And aspirational in that these greening projects, I argue are kind of mobilized with ideal futures in mind. So the subtitle, so the book is called How Green Became Good, Urbanized Nature and the Making of Cities and Citizens. So what I look at is how these, these greening projects across these different periods are used in this aspirational way. So they're implemented with ideal cities and citizens in mind, spaces and people in mind at each period and used to kind of help create them. So that is how I understand it. Yeah, it's nice to have a, a term for it too, like urbanized nature. Now that is a social imaginary that helps my brain like kind of connect things and make them make them feel concrete. Yeah, and just to finish the sentence, if I, you know, to summarize the book in a sentence. So the argument is, you know, urban, there is a social imaginary called, that I call urbanized nature that motivates this thing, this set of practices or activities we call urban greening. Got it. Yeah. So, okay. Um, something else you mentioned, so, so you're, this is something I, I tend to ask a lot of the guests is like, what do you call yourself? Like what boxes are we putting yourself in? So you called yourself, I think an historical sociologist. Mm -hmm. And so this is really interesting. There's been some important critiques of the field I locate myself in. So I generically call myself an environmental social scientist because I don't slot neatly into um, a disciplinary social science. Most people, if there was one, most of us would be more towards political science but again like there's a lot of anthropological sensitivity that's baked into the work mm. and to be honest like i just haven't engaged enough with social sociology to kind of know how you know i'm sure there's some orientation and some relationship but i'm just ignorant of it so but there has been a critique of a lot of the work that um folks like me do and that it's it's unhelpfully ahistorical 
So we'll go somewhere, we'll try to understand what's happening now. So like I work in the Dominican Republic, so I'll go there and I'll try to understand how local Dominican fishers are sharing the resources or not. What are the relationship with Haitian fishers as a kind of example of difficult intergroup conflict and struggle. And the longer I've been there, the more I have actually felt really challenged by how historically blind I am. I'm aware that things, you know, I'm aware of the, the arguments and I buy them like history matters because it affects what you see now. It also creates things like path dependence and it affects like what can actually be done with the current moment. But um, I'd love to hear, and, and, and I'm aware that from your perspective, maybe this feels a little rudimentary, like what does, when you talk about gathering evidence and doing an historical study, like what does the evidence consist in? How do you actually go about collecting the evidence to say, what, what evidence supports this characterization that you just described? It's maybe one way to put it. Right. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And I'll just say for you and your listeners that it's, it's nice to be in this interdisciplinary context and answering what appear to be rudimentary questions. So it's a good exercise for any academic, as you know, to be forced to <laughs> explain the premises of your own work. Um, yeah, and I, and I should say, so I just described myself as a historical sociologist. What I do in my research basically is sort of bring those methods, bring those methods and that orientation to broader interdisciplinary discussions in urban and environmental studies. So I publish a lot in geography. I, some people would probably call me an urban theorist. So, you know, there's some movement in there too. But um, in terms of the historical sociology part. So one thing I guess I would just say is, yes, I think, I mean, I would advocate for the importance of history both in trying to be like providing some context for things we see in the present and for sometimes helping explain um, processes that are slow or that un unfold over long periods of time. So sometimes it's just kind of necessary to understand things that happen slowly. Right? If that's like if what you your question study, is about, yeah. Sure, if you study climate change, like, you know, you'll understand it better if you think about it, if you look at the last hundred years or the last two million years, whatever, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, you asked though, what evidence do I look at to support my point? So in my case, uh, I guess two different things. So one thing that the book does is the first couple of chapters are uh, is to try to sort of compare the use of nature in this one place before and after the emergence of this imaginary. So the first couple of chapters, and I mean, maybe I can pause and just say this for listeners. So the book is a study of greening in Germany's Ruhr Valley that I argue helps us think about this phenomenon more generally in ways we can talk about later, but it looks at greening across three periods. Um, sort of the late 19th and early 20th century, the 1960s kind of like post-war era in West Germany and then um, the 90s and early 2000s, the kind of greening of post-industrial wastelands. So in the first period in the 19th and early 20th century, um, Basically, what I find is that before the turn of the century, and I should say I'm looking at the um, mostly the design of housing, kind of housing and green spaces in each of these moments. So in the first two periods, first period before this imaginary appeared, you see housing for industrial workers that is designed to basically mimic agricultural life. So nature is used there as a, as a direct good, not an indirect good, or as a subsistence good, not a kind of moral good. So these industrial workers who are, you know, wage laborers in factories, they all have access to gardens 
um, and animals. They see that as a really important part of the livelihood of workers. They organize um, this housing in what they call little colonies. So these kind of clusters that are supposed to mimic villages. So they organize their workers by country of origin, um, et cetera. So it looks like, a, I call it a simulacra of rural life. After the turn of the century, so like around the early 1900s, they start building garden cities. They borrow from this model that's common in the United Kingdom. Many of you probably have heard of Ebenezer Howard's garden cities, but they start um, building these garden cities that use nature in a totally new way. So suddenly it is forbidden to have vegetable gardens. The fruit, they have like one decorative fruit tree for every unit. Um, animal keeping is forbidden. New green public spaces are being created, et cetera. So you can see this really I thought quite remarkable historical shift. And that, so that's the kind of evidence that I draw on to at least look at the kind of emergence of this imaginary. And then the other thing I do is across these different periods kind of pull out the similarities and how people are talking about the benefits that these projects are understood to provide, the sort of social benefits um, and their, the kind of impact they're thought to have on the place. Okay. That's really helpful, thank you. Um, so that gets me to the next point I know I wanted to ask. So you talked about this emergence of, uh, in my own mind, I also, so I just taught a course on environmental media and communication. So we talked in that class a lot about like the dominant discourse. And so that also feels like a term that's relevant here. Mm -hmm. Like there's also a, a competing alternative discourses that are trying to jostle with the dominant one. Um, so we're talking about like these three, uh, characteristics of this, this, um, social imaginary of urbanized nature. So this is emerging. And so my next question to you, uh, again, is, okay, uh, what if someone says, that sounds great. I like being aspirational. Universal sounds pretty good. And I don't know, indirect sounds pretty good too. Like, okay, we can't all subsist on stuff right now. That's the way things are going. So what is the, what's the challenge with that social imaginary like what are the impacts of that and why, and I don't mean this uh, sarcastically, like why would one care? Because like, it sounds like there's also a normative piece to this. It's like, well, we should care based on like values that we have um, and how those relate to like the impacts of this particular way of viewing urbanized nature. Yeah, so there are a couple, I mean, one, so you just brought up the word discourse. I mean, I think one of the, one of the things that's important to me about this is that it's not it's not just a discourse, it is a set of practices, right? So, so the, whole, the whole point, I guess, right, is that the set of ideas leads us to act in particular ways. And one of the things I argue that it leads to is to treat green as a panacea, right? You said, I mean, you said it before. And um, so it's my answer to the question, how did green become a, a panacea in the first place? I guess, to put it in that language. So one of the things, this departs from the book a little bit, but I, I'm, I do a lot of work on contemporary sustainability planning um, and I'm interested in that as well. And so one of the things that I argue that this leads to is that we tend to use green as a solution to all kinds of urban problems, right? So this is sort of familiar when you think about urban histories. There are books that, you know, talk about sort of misguided social reformers who thought sending, you know, poor children to the countryside was the best solution to problems of urban slums and that kind of thing. But, you know, today um, I have done some research that shows that things like in like climate action planning and that kind of thing that cities tend to also have this sort of bias towards trees and green space and might 
use those as solutions to various problems such today as climate change um, as as opposed to uh, things like investments in housing transit infrastructure um, that in this case might you know have better kind of ecological impacts so i so i argue that it sort of creates this bias towards green solutions even when they aren't most helpful and that we tend to carry it out in this sort of unreflexive way where we think that our our work is done once the park is in place so in the conclusion of the book which is supposed to be written with practitioners in mind you know or at least people who are kind of oriented towards practical questions i kind of jokingly say like we should green better and green less right so one one thing is like reading less would suggest, you know, resist the urge to always turn to a park. Maybe we need other things like public bathrooms or public transit. Um, and in, by greening better, that returns to some of these things I was kind of gesturing at before about, yeah, how, thinking, thinking smarter about how we reproduce particular norms and conventions and expectations when designing green space spaces and how to uh, try to make them more kind of genuinely democratic either by being open to a broader range of uses or um, other things like that okay so i mean one of our recent guests is a friend of mine named forrest fleischman who's been a loud voice in critiquing this kind of plant a million or a trillion or a bajillion trees movement mm. and his work is based in rural india where he's seen some of these tree planting and plantation projects and he, he had a study where he's like, why did why do foresters just plant so many trees? And his concern was, well, we're kind of ignoring the social aspects of these. We're going in and we're planting trees and we're not even necessarily engaging with the local communities. We're kind of maximizing this metric of, okay, we can tell someone on a piece of paper that we planted such and such many trees. And so the narrative that you're describing here, I mean, and you also mentioned this, this movement to like plant a whole bunch of trees to solve our problems. So it sounds like there's this interesting similarity between that movement as a kind of green oriented technical fix to our, what is at, a, at the end, a deeply social political problem. It sounds like this is also occurring here in your critique of this is that we're viewing parks as a kind of technical fix and ignoring the social implications of just making a lot of parks and not building in politics and society into the parks in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I, I focus mostly on parks. Trees are definitely part of this. Um, even in terms of the historical evidence, like there's a moment where cities start paying for tree planting rather than seeing that as like this kind of frivolity that, you know, rich individuals should be doing on their own land. But yeah, so these tree planting projects, I think are a great example of it that when I was working for parks, there was an initiative, there was a million trees initiative in New York, the, the numbers have scaled up since then. Um, and even there, I mean, there were issues like the contracts for tree planting didn't include watering or maybe they did include watering but couldn't be enforced right so one of the things so these trees were all dying and we were helping volunteers go out and water all these trees to keep them alive like so they tend not to work practically they're often carried out in places where it doesn't make a lot of sense like ecologically places that might have limited water places where there's too much sun you know the trees are going to die maybe your your colleague works on that kind of stuff he's worried um, about the exact same things yeah, and and I think so again, so as a sociologist, I guess my my goal is to historicize and like denaturalize these these things. Like why why does this become the solution? 
and to try to give an explanation for for why it is and and you know so this this imaginary if we if we can if we can imagine that this imaginary exists it it can help explain other things right so these tree planting projects are cheap relatively speaking right it's like easier to put in a, a billion quantifiable trees than to build a whole new you know housing or transit system i get that they're politically popular um you know people like them they seem desirable and beneficial uh, but I think, you know, part of that, the reason they seem desirable and beneficial, the reason they're politically popular, the reason it's such a powerful, like, symbolic solution to these kinds of problems is for some of this, uh, some of these reasons that I try to bring out. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned that you've, uh, it's not like this was in the present, you're continuing to engage with uh, planners and folks that are uh, essentially practitioners. Do you, I mean... I wonder whether one of the issues here is like the representation that occurs within government offices. Is, do you see that as an issue? Like who's actually, I feel like often, you know, who's in the room matters as much as anything else. Like as part of the issue here um, that uh, there isn't enough representation in governmental offices to represent maybe some of the interests that get crowded out in these processes. Or is that, do you not see that? Yeah, that's a good, I mean, representation is always a problem, of course. I think that more, that it's, that representation wouldn't solve the problem, right? That, okay. that we need more, that the kinds of interventions that are needed to solve the contemporary climate crisis or whatever, create a more sustainable city, um, require a kind of like money and power that, that that just having different people in the room probably wouldn't accomplish personally. Sure. Um, so yeah, I guess that I don't know. Can you tell what what was what was motivating that question or what what made you Oh I suppose it's a part of the narrative that I engage with and that when you when you think about um, why people make some decisions they do if they're in a certain office well they decide to plant trees and not worry about maybe the social impacts because they're not from one of the communities that's impacted. Right. So the things you worry about are a function of your identity, identities and who you are and what impacts you. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I yeah, I've started to look. Um, so I sort of said I do some research on contemporary sustainability planning. One project I've been working on here in California is a study of climate action plans. So mm. because California has strong environment like state environmental legislation many cities it's, it's sort of it's not a mandate but many cities are understood to have been required to produce a climate action plan so you can kind of see there's this kind of amazing example of several hundred cities of all sizes and kind of political orientation who have created these plans and so i've been looking with some graduate students of mine and a colleague um at at what kind of you know policies they include and that sort of thing and um I think one of the things that's become clear to us, it, this is beyond representation, like some of the things that might prompt tree-like solutions um, is that, is the way like states, in our case, the way state funding is allocated, for example, the, um, the amounts of funding, right, that tend to be kind of enough for planting trees or, or doing some planting, but not enough to, um, to, to remake the built environment in a more substantial way. Um, again, the kind of like political will that's required for some of the other sorts of intervention 
Hillary, can you so, unpack what you meant by the way state funding is allocated? Um, I can try. I mean, I, I, this is, and I, I will acknowledge my graduate student, Jane Sirigadas, who's here at UC Santa Cruz, who is the person who is lead author on a forthcoming book chapter that goes into some of this. Mm. But um, basically, you know, state funding is, tends to be allocated either for planning, as I said, like not, not for implementation, but for plans themselves. And again, just the kind of amount of, of grants that are available is at a size or scale that could be enough to plant some trees, but would not be enough to build a new public transit system. Um, we also look at things like there's a kind of increasing use of consultants, like private consultants, especially in smaller cities to produce these plans. And those consultants tend not to do, well, very few of these plans tend to do kind of like needs assessments in advance, which I guess goes to some of your, your questions about who's in the room. So they kind of bring in a set of assumptions about what interventions are helpful and parks and green spaces are always kind of on the list. Um, and so we just kind of see that getting reproduced at, in all of these municipal right. plans. The paper we're working on that will hopefully be out soon is called Missing the Housing for the Trees. Oh, um, nice. So, yeah. A good title is important. Of, all right. I also didn't come up. Well, I can cite my colleague Adam Millard Ball at UCLA for the title, I think. Great. But, um, I mean, yeah. so, Hillary, this also reminds me of, of what I perceive to be a, just a long standing governance challenge is the emphasis on formality and novelty and measurable outputs at the expense of implementation and maintenance. Like actually making sure that like, oh, we planted this stuff or we have this park, like how do we actually make sure that it's used and it's used sustainably and it's maintained, maybe it's maintained by the people who actually live here, but if we didn't include them in the project, why would they? Yeah, I think you're right. And I'm, sorry, I'm nodding vigorously. I should probably vocalize uh, what I was saying here. Yeah, I mean, you're right. There is a problem for a lack of maintenance dollars today, mm -hmm. especially. I mean, and some of that, as you, here's, here's, an, here's another plug for history, right? Some of that is sort of characteristic of the current political economy. Like we talk about neo, neoliberalism and then it cutbacks in city dollars and an increasing reliance on sort of public-private partnerships or privately funded um, green spaces and such things that that can kind of earn earn money for their own maintenance. Um, and I think, I mean, those are problems, problems for keeping trees alive, problems for, for, for the functioning of our cities, problems in all kinds of ways. They also, I think, um, it invoke or like prompt me to re-invoke some of these questions about um, how accessible some of these spaces actually are, right? So I think um, I'll just name some New York examples because those are the ones I'm most familiar with, but so some common critiques of projects like the High Line or um, new parks and relatively new parks in New York like Brooklyn Bridge Park. These are parks that have a lot of private concessions that um, use things like housing to kind of generate maintenance dollars. And that's good, but it also makes those spaces less um, accessible in various ways. Mm. They, they have, you know, they invite you to buy um, a glass of Prosecco rather than including a playground. They suggest that you might need to have the money to purchase something to go to them. They, they like physically remove some of the um, space of the park and turn it into housing. And so, you know, some of those trade-offs are necessary it, given the context and some um, maybe are not, but they all kind of impact the way the space mm. is used. 
I mean, it reminds me of another, so I, mean, I think about governance a lot, if that's not obvious, but it reminds me of another challenge is, is how hard it often is to not primarily help people that are mostly already prepared to help themselves. Right. If I'm sorry. So yeah, yeah I, it's I, hard to help people who are not. I was like, I'm going to say this and hopefully she'll understand <laughs> it. Cause it, yeah, I mean, cause you know, there's, there's a distribution of resources among any group and it's when you come into a, a community, how do you help the people that actually aren't already prepared to help themselves? Like it's the more resources someone has, the more they're going to be able to avail themselves of policies and projects, et cetera. But if you're right. trying to like d disproportionately help people that are disenfranchised, like that's challenging. Yeah, it is challenging. And, and I think, right. And it's easy. To, I don't know if this is where you're Yeah. It's easy to think that giving them a park will help and, it, you know, giving them a park is helpful, but if that park goes on to like increase property values, that's challenging. If you yep. give them a park, but you don't give them after school care, mm. like that's challenging. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I mean, this is, this is a slightly tangential, but so one, one piece of recent writing I've done with some different colleagues was called Expand the Frontiers of Urban Sustainability. And um, I, I mentioned that it's just like a commentary piece, but it, it tries to expand the frame to just try to bring in more of these social and political questions of the sort that you're raising. And so maybe one, you know, one really simple way or simple kind of takeaway from my work and the work of my friends and colleagues is that exactly what you said, like it's, it's easy to kind of zoom in <clears throat> on these particular projects, um, on these particular like sort of like talismans or tokens of environmental sustainability, like a tree. But, you know, if we're not thinking about the context the like wider context of the people they're meant to serve, the wider context of the like environmental problems themselves, um, the one, you know, the governance context in which these things are all being carried out, we, we risk creating projects that, that in the end don't, don't do much for anyone. So mm. in that piece, we talk about like how easy it is to kind of just displace environmental problems to the jurisdiction next door, or even do things like, you know, it's really easy to create a green and sustainable, lovely neighborhood, but then if people end up getting kicked a couple neighborhoods out, right, then they might find themselves like commuting to work by car, which will in the end increase emissions more than that's the green before. gentrification you were mentioning earlier. Yeah, that's yeah. the kind of paradox of green gentrification and this kind of awareness that these places that seem really sustainable, like local projects that might seem very green or effective or desirable or wonderful can actually have adverse environmental impacts. You know, there can be like a kind of net zero or even negative outcome when you just <laughs> take a step back. Mm. Um, so it sounds like you engage with uh, some non-academic actors in your work, planners, uh, folks involved in sustainability. And that's um, a lot of the guests on the podcast uh, are like that. And it's honestly almost like a bit of a norm in my field. We, maybe you know this term, we call it transdisciplinarity. Of So it's not interdisciplinarity between scientists, but it's transdisciplinarity between like academics and non-academic actors to the extent of like actually building in local community values into like research design. So it's not like we're coming here with our questions and we're going to answer them about you. We're going to actually ask you like what questions you want answered. Um, and so, you know, that comes with challenges. And one of the challenges that I think a lot of us experience is the different versions of ourselves. We are like within academia versus like when we're talking to people who aren't academics, there's different lingo, there's different styles. 
Um, is that something you've observed, you know, when you're talking to planners, do you, you, like, do you talk about social imaginaries and like, how do you navigate the different spaces that I'm imagining you being in doing this work? That's a wonderful question. I, I don't think I navigate it very well. I mean, or I guess I'll just say, you know, I am at a career stage. Here's what happened to me. I had a professional career. I got my PhD. I got my job. I just got tenure, in fact. So um, congratulations! But thank you. It was very exciting. But yeah, so it's it's. I mean, I think like many of us, right? You kind of go into a hole for ten years and think deep, think long and hard about a question that matters a lot to you, and develop an answer that is about a hundred steps removed from the person you were and the conversations you were a part of that prompted the inquiry in the first place. So I would say I'm I'm in the I'm in the midst of trying to make my way back. I mean, the book just came out. So part of what I'm doing is trying to like figure out how to, you know, talk most effectively to, to public audiences and those kinds of things. Um, I will say that, you know, when I talk to planners in the context of my research, or when I talk to more kind of policy oriented people as a result of the outcomes of this research, I end up referencing my, I end up like, invoking my former professional self a lot. I feel like I draw on examples and vocabulary and observations that I made then um, and, and, and use that as the kind of the way mm. into some of the thinking. Um, it's just, I don't know, it's something I've noticed myself doing. For myself, I've often felt like I wish I had more of that experience outside, and like in many ways, right? Like when I'm talking to students, like I've made a point of like working with like local partners and NGOs in my field work because of the, for me, it's the same set of values. Like I wanna have a foot outside in this other world because I think that makes my research and my teaching better. But I was never fully in that world myself. And to me, that's not, that's like, I would, I think some of the stuff I do would have been better if I had. Yeah, that's interesting. I always wonder how long I can call on that past history. And I, <laughs> yeah. you know, I think for me, the challenge is developing a current, a persona and a way of talking about work that is grounded in my current research. So, so, I mean, to answer your question, like, no, I do not use the language of social imaginary, but um, I just try to say like, hey, isn't it interesting that these ideas and symbols and, you know, that this all looks so similar all around the world. And like, let's try to think about why that would be the case. But but I'm working on it. I think also, I mean, I don't know, you can cut this if it's not interesting. I think um, one of the challenges for me as an academic is trying to figure out how to do work that's, that's obviously policy relevant, not just relevant because I can make connections in my mind, but that's also like intellectually engaging for me. So this climate action plans project is, is sort of policy, it's obviously policy oriented. And so I, I did it because I wanted to try that out as a mode of engaging with practice, practitioners. I think I learned it's, it's not my preferred type of research though. So like I'm kind of coming to terms with accepting that I like historical and theoretical work. I carry it out because I believe it has contemporary relevance. And so then, then, it's, then the challenge is you know, what do you do with that? And how do you make it useful for people? So mm. that is unresolved for me at the moment. Yeah, but, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you're, we're actually, you're, you're answering, we're talking about the answer to what is generally my last question, which is kind of what's next. I mean, you just had this book out. And so you're, you're making sure that that is set sail well. And it, it does sound like you're, you are thinking about what's next to this, this climate action plan project with your grad student. Um, 
are there other things that you've kind of got got on your mind thinking about another book project it sounds like maybe another book on historical sociology might come out someday yeah uh i have a couple yeah so the one um so the i think the next book that i might manage to produce will be with a a co-author and colleague and friend, uh, David Walksmith, who's at McGill University. And we've, we've written a lot together on current sustainability planning and um, the, including a, an article, a recent article on cities saving the planet. So like why, why everybody thinks cities should be the solution to global environmental problems. So I think we're gonna kind of put together a bunch of that current work um, in a book that looks at, looks at current environmental, like urban sustainability planning and the kind of environmental understandings that are embedded in that. So it will include some of the stuff on, you know, the bias towards green and all these um, policy discussions. So that'll probably happen next and hopefully will help like land the plane in terms of contemporary um, relevance of some of this historical work and more theoretical work. And then I've just started thinking, um, working on a book about public lands. So mm. I'm out here in California now and I've become really, and I have a dog and so I'm out in the mountains a lot and I've become really interested in um, the Bureau of Land Management and um, public lands, which are 25% of the land in the US and responsible for 20% of US emissions thanks to um, leases for coal, oil and gas extraction, which Biden mm. recently paused. So um, we have Deb Haaland as the new secretary of the interior. Like there's all this really interesting stuff going around around these spaces that relate to a lot of these questions about like who is the public, what uses, um, are allowed, what does it mean to, you know, pr preserve or manage land in the public interest, um, and obviously has a really fraught history. So mm. that's, that's, that's like a, that'll be many years in the making, but that's kind of what I'm doing, thinking about now. Very cool. And it sounds like that's yeah. maybe a departure from an urban focus. Well, it is in some ways, but I will say one of the things that I think is really interesting about these places is that there's a lot of interest in them from, or kind of growing interest in them from these traditionally kind of urban environmental movements, like climate justice movements and that sort of thing. And um, even like when you think about, uh, is it like millennial, I guess it's not millennials, Gen Zers, these kind of hashtag- I, I can't keep up with it, yeah. Yeah, so like young people who can't afford to buy houses but are instead buying vans and touring national parks. So I think, I mean, there there is a kind of renewed interest in um, these, spaces by kind of yeah or like progressive urban populations and so i think that'll that'll prompt some interesting political questions thanks for listening everyone the incoming podcast has been associated with the international association for the study of the commons or iasc and the international journal of the commons or ijc for the last several months now in addition to developing our relationships with each of these organizations, we have been expanding our own team in the last month or so. We now have an official blog editor, Pranita Mudaliar, an assistant professor of environmental studies and science from Ithaca College. Moving forward, we plan on publishing a more regular series of blog posts that will complement our mostly weekly podcast episodes. You can access each of our blog posts at our website, incomingpodcast.org.